The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know and Doesn't Have Time to Tell You. of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults, from latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. How are you, Lindsay? I'm great. Welcome back to another episode. Yeah, should be a good one today, I think. I'm excited. Uh, we're lucky to have, have our guest with us today. Yeah, this week we're going to talk about pharmacogenomics, which is a big, interesting word. It is. I think we're lucky uh, because we work very closely with um, pharmacists, and we have a, a very unique situation where we have a, a genetic lab um, as part of our healthcare system. Yeah, and pharmacogenomics is looking at the genetics of how people metabolize medications. And so it's kind of a, a very scientific sounding topic, but um, helps us out in terms of selecting medications and things. And we're fortunate to have one of our pharmacists joining us today to go into more detail about this. We're excited to have Dr. Natasha Petri with us today. She has a bachelor's degree in microbiology and graduated with her doctorate of pharmacy in 2012 from North Dakota State University in Fargo, North Dakota. After completing a postgraduate pharmacy practice residency at Trinity Health in Minot, North Dakota, she joined the faculty at NDSU as an assistant professor with a clinical appointment at Samford Health. Natasha is a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and began working in the area of pharmacogenomics in 2014. She is an affiliate member of the NIH-funded Implementing Genomics in Practice Network in clinical practice, as a pharmacogenetics clinical pharmacist for Sanford Imagenetics, she performs pharmacogenetic chart reviews while her faculty position allows her to teach pharmacogenomics and other topics to pharmacy students. She has given many pharmacogenomic-related continuing education presentations and published pharmacogenomic-related articles. Currently, she's pursuing a Master's of Public Health degree and plans to graduate with her MPH later this year. In addition to work and school, Natasha enjoys spending time with her family and attending various sporting events. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. If you don't mind, we'd love to have you just do kind of a quick one-line intro on anything else you want to say or summarize. Yeah, pharmacogenomics is a really um, evolving field that's really exciting. And so to practice on the forefront of medicine uh, gives me challenges, multiple challenges on a daily basis. That's great. Yeah. So we have a pretty cool topic today, I think. And I think it's one that, um, you know, people are starting to talk about and hear about, but maybe don't know a lot about yet. So can you kind of give us a little history on pharmacogenomics and um, where things are at now? Yeah. So, you know, for many years, we've known that some people respond to medications one way and one medication works for a person where it doesn't work for for someone else or one person might have side effects and another person might not. And and so really dating back to, to 510 BC, Pythagoras found that fava beans were, were fatal in some people, but not in others. And that was sort of the, the beginning when we think about 
um, genetics uh, affecting the way people respond. Um, years and years later, in 1866, Mendel published on the rules of heredity, heredity um, which is passing on genetic characteristics from one generation to another. So a long gap there. And then another, you know, gap, it was the mid, you know, 1900s, around 1949, where drug responses were actually, you know, tied to individuals' makeup. Um, the term pharmacogenetics, although it seems something sort of new uh, in the healthcare field, was actually keyed in 1957, related to the way that the body breaks down medications um, in association with drug drug response. So since then, you know, a lot of advances in gen- genomic medicine, the mapping of the human genome, a lot of science and technology related advances that really have brought us to where we are today. And and probably why it's a topic that your listeners are interested in is becoming a part of clinical care. And so um, we're seeing health systems utilize this information. We're seeing patients being able to obtain some of this information on their own. And it's being used uh, in certain situations to uh, help guide prescribing of medications. Yeah, it's really, I think, a um, developing and fascinating front of medicine that we're on. So pretty cool. And I think I'm actually surprised that the term goes back as far as 1957, because um, who knew then that we would be doing what we can do now? I was really surprised, too. You know, um, had to do a presentation and looked into the history a little bit. And that was surprising to me, too, that it had been that long ago. Yeah. And I think we're pretty lucky, um, Kirsten and I, just being where we work that we get to work so closely with pharmacists like you who who can help us integrate this into our, our primary care clinic and how we treat patients. I don't know that that's a common thing across the country, um, but certainly becoming more common. And, and I just think we're, we're quite lucky and our patients are as well. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of a lot of places don't have the resources um, to even provide robust pharmacogenetic testing, much less have, you know, pharmacists and genetic counselors and other resources, um, you know, to help interpret that that data and bring programs forward. I guess with that background, what exactly can we do with it in our clinic? Yeah, that's a great question and a really common question, too. And so I think that, you know, there's some misconceptions out there, such as if I get a pharmacogenetic test, it's going to help dictate all of my therapy. Um, Here's my medication list. Tell me what the right medication is for everything that I'm on. And, you know, it's sort of futuristic and hopeful that that we'll get there. But the utility right now is is sort of limited to where the strong evidence is. And just like there's guidelines for different disease states, there's also guidelines for pharmacogenetics. And we rely heavily on them to um, sort of collate the evidence and and let us know as clinicians what is actionable. And so there's, you know, a handful of genes to test that relate to a handful of medications. I think we're seeing the real utility based on guidelines uh, in areas of antidepressants, pain, some, you know, cardiology related medications and and certainly, a, you know, a handful of other areas. But those tend to be the, the common areas um, that we see. Yeah. And I love hearing you mention the antidepressants, for example, because that's one if if our listeners have ever taken antidepressants, you've probably heard from your clinician, well, we're going to try this and give it a good four to six weeks and kind of see how it goes. And 
hopefully it'll help you. And if it doesn't, we're going to try something else. And I think it's um, really neat now that we can do some testing and at least make a more educated um, choice when we're selecting an antidepressant for somebody. Yeah, that's a great example and one that I really like to use. And so, okay, we're going to try one, pick one, we'll see how it goes and we'll follow up. And, you know, pharmacogenetics isn't necessarily the bullseye in the dartboard, but at least it makes our dartboard a little bit smaller for helping identify, you know, a medication that not only will work, um, but that may eliminate or, um, you know, side effects or toxicities. Yeah. So can you explain a little more about how genetic testing does help pick that medication and what the benefit is in terms of how it's processed in the body? Yeah. So genetic testing, pharmacogenetic testing looks at enzymes that break down medications in the body. And so some people have enzymes where medications get broken down more quickly. Some people, you know, have enzymes where Uh, medications get broken down more slowly. And so that can affect whether medication will work well or not, or whether a patient may um, be more likely to have to have side effects. And so really, I think when we are looking at pharmacogenetics, I sort of think of two main buckets of safety and efficacy. So, um, you know, some guidelines will help us determine this medication is more likely to work for you or this medication and specifically more dosing. You know, a patient might have to have half the regular dose of a normal person or, you know, it might uh, mean, hey, let's just increase the monitoring for a certain parameter for this medication. And, uh, you know, also the safety we don't want to use this uh, because you're you're at increased risk for an adverse effect. Doesn't mean that you would have it for certain, but just the increased risk to watch out for. Yeah, and I know in my practice, so when patients have this testing done, they'll or we as a clinician will get kind of a list back from our pharmacist who's evaluated it, kind of saying. Um, you know, they're on this medication, maybe they don't metabolize it as well since they've been tolerating it without side effects. It's okay to continue it. Other times the report will say, you know, this really should be switched to something else. And I think that's um, really invaluable information. I think that you bring up a great point because pharmacogenetics really is just a piece of the puzzle, another tool in the toolbox. And so that's why it's so important to bring um, results to providers because, you know, age, other medications, kidney function, liver function, it all um, impacts how patients respond to medications. So, well, a pharmacogenetic test might say, you know, it's likely that this patient won't respond to this medication, but they've been on it for years and they're responding fine. Then you have to take into account the clinical picture as well. So... When you're evaluating patients, is there a particular group that you recommend undergo pharmacogenomic testing, or do you feel like it should be a blanket thing that everybody goes through? Any recommendations there? Yeah, that's a great question, too. So in theory, you know, a person's genetics shouldn't change throughout their lifetime. Um, It's not going to change, you know, like a a blood cell count or something, at least um, from age two and up. And so when we think about advances in the field, I think that we will get to the point where um, you'll get it early on in your life preemptively and you'll just have have the information. But for right now, I mean, the costs of genetic testing are still pretty high and can be a big limitation. So um, it may not be for everyone. 
There's really not any guidelines to say, here's patients that should get a genetic test. The guidelines really just help us interpret results once genetic tests, uh, we get the results for them. But certainly taking a look at uh, the guidelines to see which medications actually have actionable results. For example, like a lisinopril or a losartan, there's no guidelines for them. And so if, um, if that's a medication that's not working or causing side effects, a genetic test really isn't going to, to help versus a patient you know, who's on um, clopidogrel, um, looking at that for, for if it's going to work or not. There's good uh, data out there for, for genetic tests with an enzyme called CYP2C19. For patients who uh, are, are fearful of uh, statin-related muscle pain or if they've had muscle pain with simvastatin and are afraid to maybe try another statin, um, certainly genetic test results can help for those patients. Antidepressants, like we talked about already, there's a lot of discussion about the use of pharmacogenomics in pain. There's some strong guidelines for, for coding. Um, pharmacogenomics played a role in you know, restricting the use of coding in children um, because of metabolizing so quickly that, that they had respiratory depression. Uh, you know, also some information on tramadol. Um, and then when we think about coding, obviously hydrocodone and such are related. And so when we uh, start to think about People who may not respond well to pain medications, and it's you know so hard to tell because it's such a subjective thing that we do actually have this objective pharmacogenetic information that can you know give us another piece of the puzzle. Absolutely, and I think tramadol is an interesting example of this. Can you go into a little bit more? It's a pro drug, right? Can you explain kind of what that means and what the genetics into breaking it down? How that affects how it might work? Yeah, so so tramadol is an interesting one in multiple ways because it depends on um, more than just one enzyme as well. But as far as the prodrug, uh, there are prodrugs and active drugs. And so one of the really important reasons to discuss results with your your provider is because um, the type of metabolizer you are, it'll sort of influence you in a different way whether you're at increased risk for side effects or at risk for it not working for you, depending on if it's a prodrug or an active drug. So a prodrug actually needs converting to an active form um, before it's going to work for you. And so if you have an enzyme that's broken, that that doesn't work, you can't convert that medication into the active form for it to, to work for you. And that one's also interesting because part of it, I mean, depending on which enzymes you have more of, it is either broken down into a medicine that works more like an antidepressant, or if you have more of a different enzyme, does it, the other chance is right, a, is the medicine to work for pain. Is that right? Yes. Yep. That's right. And again, tramadol's not the greatest <laughs> example for, for prodrug just because it depends on more than like CYP 2D, 2D6 is the one we know most about, but it depends on a lot of, um, of other enzymes too. Um, clopidogrel is a great example of a prodrug. And that's Plavix. And Plavix. I know that yep. it's Plavix, but mm -hmm. we like to use the generic names here. So clopidogrel. Yep. <laughs> um, and so 
that is a prodrug. It needs to be converted into active form for it to work. So patients who are poor metabolizers or an intermediate metabolizer, um, so poor meaning they have two broken genes or intermediate meaning that one of their genes is is broken, they're not able to convert the, the medication that they take into that active form to work in the body. And so there's uh, plenty of literature out there showing increased cardiac events um, for patients who are poor metabolizers on clopidogrel because they're taking a medication that's not being converted in a way that's going to work for them. Right. And so we usually use clopidogrel after a cardiac event, after a heart attack or a stent to help prevent another blockage or a blockage to that injured vessel. And if it's not working, that's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. We um, have seen in the literature more and more studies coming out. And so uh, institutions and providers handle this different way. Some will just avoid clopidogrel, but because, um, you know, up until recently, it's been the only generic option, um, it does tend to be uh, cost effective as as literature has shown to spend the money on a genetic test to avoid the huge, um, you know, price tag of an, of a repeat, uh, hospitalization and cardiac event. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a great example of where this testing really can be useful. Yeah. That is one, um, with the strongest evidence. And so even if institutions aren't, um, implementing this in all of the different areas that we've talked about already, a very common way is just, um, for clopidogrel alone to utilize pharmacogenetics in that way. I think in the, my experience with the patients that have had this done, the biggest one that comes back to me, um, as actionable is that they happen to be on a statin that probably isn't the best for them or that they have a higher risk of it. So I think it's, you know, it's been interesting because I've generally brought them in to talk about it. Although some of these people have been on, on this medication forever and never not have a problem. Um, but when we do talk about it, we've switched the majority, um, just based on this information. And so I think that's kind of the, the one that I have had a lot of experience with is with the statins. Yeah, that's a very common one that I see um, when I do my clinical reviews, either decreased or poor function in the transporter gene for statins. And, you know, if uh, if that gene is broken, the the statin medication isn't able to be transported where it needs to be. And so it can accumulate leading to that um, muscle pain. But you're right. A lot of these patients have been on it for a long time and, you know, it's working for them. But, uh, you know. As things change, as people age, as different medications come on board, um, you know, at that time, then perhaps they do start to feel muscle pain or they are at the increased risk. So uh, whether that's increased monitoring with some certain lab parameters or just uh, proactively switching, I think that that's a, you know, statins are a common medication people are on. So maybe that's why why we're seeing it a lot. But yeah, that's a very common recommendation um, that I make. If, if it's simvastatin, the evidence is the strongest for that one, but also evidence is building um, for, for a torvastatin to be uh, careful with that one if the gene is broken. You mentioned, um, you know, this pharmacogenomic testing as being kind of a piece of the puzzle. It's not the end-all, be-all. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why why, what are its limitations and why? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And so um, I think we sort of 
mention, you know, patients who might have the decreased gene for statins, but they're tolerating it okay. Um, sort of same for antidepressants. You know, you can get a result that that says, oh, you're probably going to have side effects and, and you might not be. And so the the whole picture needs to be taken into account. And there are plenty of um, limitations that we can talk about. And so one of the limitations is actually that depending on where the lab test is done, you know, you may get different results. And so to test the whole genome right now, I mean, it can be done, but it's very expensive. It's not practical. And so each lab decides the variants that they're going to look for. That's based on evidence, but also what what technology can do. And so one of the limitations, and I actually experienced this myself, um, having genetic testing done at a couple different places uh, for pharmacogenetics, is the lab decides which variant alleles to, or which broken genes to test for. And if they don't find one of those broken genes, then essentially they report you out as normal. And so... Um, you can be normal, but then if you get it done from a different company who tests a different allele that you might have a variant in, then um, you know you might be reported as a different type of metabolizer. So I think it's really important to you know examine the lab and and what they're testing for. And so you know that's that's certainly a limitation. Um, we talked about cost, and I think. You know, it's still a limitation is the utility of it and the cost effectiveness of it. And so we have guidelines um, where there is strong evidence, but, you know, a majority of medications we still can't really utilize pharmacogenetics for, you know, futuristically, hopefully. But right now, if you think that you're going to get a pharmacogenetic test and it'll help determine all of your medications, um, it won't. So that's, you know, certainly a limitation. Um, Additionally, you know, there's a couple different sets of guidelines and their recommendations don't always line up. And so there's a real push within um, the pharmacogenetics community to become a bit more standardized. So let's go back and talk about those a little bit. So if we're talking about, like you said, a broken um, gene, one example maybe would be looking for breast cancer predisposition, right? Right. When you're when you're looking for, um, yeah, a broken gene or a variant and um, it sort of falls outside the scope of pharmacogenetics, but it but is completely in the spirit of genomic medicine. Yes, looking for a gene that predisposes you to breast cancer. Right. And so we're talking about like BRCA variants, which people have probably heard of BRCA, the ones that do increase risk of breast cancer quite a bit. And um, like you said, one company might test only BRCA1 and 2 and report back to you, no, you don't have it. So you, you get that reassurance. And then if you would go somewhere else and they check another variant and you do have it, then um, it would be, you know, contrary to what you were told initially. Right, exactly. And so that um, brings up a good point to just, you know, if you're getting a test through your health system, it's likely to be pretty, you know, reliable and, and they've done their research. But, um, you know, some some companies can report it just to say that they reported and they might not look as extensively as as some other places. Uh, and so uh, looking at, you know, where you're where you're getting your test done and and what they're testing for. And it's a really sort of tough issue to think about as far as a, a false assurance that you don't have this, right? So 
when you get a, a result back and it says you don't have the variant, um, that just means that you don't have the variant that they tested for. It doesn't mean that you don't have any other variants. And of course, um, doesn't mean that, you know, another you know, factor or, or anything would play into you getting the disease for a different reason. So I think that kind of take your information with a grain of salt and in, enjoy some of uh, the information you get from some of these outside labs, but know that, and just like in breast cancer, you know, that gene isn't the only gene that makes you at risk. Um, and we don't know all the genes yet that maybe put you at risk of, of a breast cancer. And so even if, you know, you just have to take that information uh, for what it's worth, which is always growing and we're gaining, but not 100% accurate or helpful in, in predicting the, your future. Yeah. And I like to, I like how our um, facility uses the term, instead of negative results, we call them uninformative results. So if you don't have a positive result, it's termed uninformative, which doesn't mean we didn't learn anything from it. It just means that there weren't any positive findings, but we did not do a comprehensive test of the entire genome to look for things. I have a question, Natasha. Do you, how fast are we learning to add other drugs to our one our set of of strong um, information to be actionable on? I don't have a concrete answer, but I know that you know this year already we've. Um, had some additions to the guidelines and some draft um, guidelines have gone out for more medications. And so um, now that it's becoming a little bit more mainstream, we're seeing guidelines come out a little bit quicker. We're seeing um, revisions to guidelines that we already have. Uh, part of the, the biggest battle in this area is just um, lack of really good trials. And that's just due to you know, institutions individually don't have um, the numbers to to put out good studies. And so there's lots of collaborations. In my bio, you heard reference the Ignite Network. And so that's multiple sites across the country um, being funded by the NIH to take their genetic data collectively so that the numbers are there to be able to look at some of these um, relationships and, um, and base base further guidelines off of that information. That's awesome. That's really great to hear. So on average, maybe a few updates a year, would you say, but not we're not seeing big numbers coming out in general. Right. We're seeing more information get collected where we're tying different variants to different medications, but association studies here and there, um, just like you said, nothing really uh, big and groundbreaking, like changing on a daily basis for the ones that we would actually take action on. Definitely a growing, a growing list and that will keep growing. Yeah, it'll, it'll keep growing. Um, It's really, really exciting because with all the new information coming out, every time, you know, there's a change to the guidelines or a new guideline comes out, uh, you know, we have to not only take that into account for uh, what we're doing with our, our reviews and how we treat patients, but also developing education materials, um, developing alerts that will fire within the electronic medical record to notify providers um, that, you know, something genetically is uh, has been tested and may affect the medication and so um, there's a lot of a lot of work that comes out when a, when a new guideline comes out but it's really exciting because um, we can you know 
keep refining this information uh, and you know hopefully get to the the point of true precision medicine. But uh, again, it has it has limited scope. But for what we can use it for, I think that that there's a potential for it to be very helpful. Are you seeing most patients who are undergoing the testing, are they doing it more as a preventive thing or is it once they have a diagnosis or have something going on, somebody recommends that they have it? And do you have any thoughts or guidelines for that? Yeah, there's sort of uh, two approaches and, you know, certainly some of it depends on the cost, but, uh, preemptively and at our institution we we really take a, a proactive approach to um, recommend that you just get a, a panel testing so it has multiple genes that we know affect medications and you know ideally you would get this test before you're ever on any medication and so that when you are prescribed it at the at the time of care, um, that information is available to the provider. The alert will will pop up in the in the system, and not all systems have have the alert for genetics. But um, I think that's one of the great things about our institution is that we have it. And so, yeah, I, I see a lot of utility in in doing it ahead of time, preemptively having the information there. Again, as technology changes, you know, uh, advances are made. We test for and look for for more genes um you know uh, maybe there might be a need to to rerun a sample or something but again depending on the cost i think um reactive so doing it for a reason is um tends to be more cost effective at this point until we can um you know see more more research done in the preemptive area but certainly i think um you know, thinking about those medications, we talked about clopidogrel earlier, statins, antidepressants, certainly in that area. Um, you know, if if you're on an antidepressant and it's working and you're not having side effects, I don't really see a need to go have the genetic test result to tell you what you really probably don't need to know because it's working for you and you're not having side effects. However, a medication like clopidogrel, um, you're not going to know that it's not working until maybe you end up back in the hospital. And so, um, you know, preemptively you, you would have that information, but, but reactively I think it it's, warrants a conversation between the patient and the provider, um, you know, taking a look at the medication list and, and considering, you know, maybe should we just look at this, this one gene drug uh, relationship? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's um, still hard to know what approach to take. And I have a lot of conversations with my patients about this, especially those who are just curious about, you know, is it going to help them? In my population, probably most of my patients are on a few medications. So at that point, it's probably a little more reactive. Um, but I do tell them that in general, it's very helpful information to have. Um, I certainly recommend it if I, like you said, have a patient who's maybe been on different antidepressants with side effects or just really hasn't found something that worked well for them. How about you, Lindsay? Do you have a, a specific approach with your patients? I basically do the same thing you do. We talk about it and we ha- have the discussion um, about how, it, you know, if they're not on many drugs in the future, um, if we're thinking about starting you on something, it can help us pick the right one. And we don't have to fiddle around with time. You know, it's kind of a time thing, maybe getting you on the appropriate antidepressant. If they're already on several of these medications and doing fine, then I, I'm not going to push it. But 
um, I certainly think it gives us valuable information. I think that, um, you know, when we're ordering lab testing of any type, you know, a lot of times we, we are either doing it you know, for a reason or, or just to be proactive. But, you know, one of the hard things might be when you think about this new cool genetic testing and you get results back and there might not be anything to do with it. Um, and so uh, to have an intervention that might might not need to be made, I think, you know, can can also be valuable information in some cases. And so I think it's important for our listeners to realize that um, while it might be helpful, sometimes, you know, you might be a normal metabolizer and your side effects from the antidepressant aren't able to be explained from the genetic test results. So with our particular lab, and I don't know if, if labs are different in this, um, they are a sample is kept and it will be run again for things that become something in the future. Is that true or not? So when you consent to have have a lab test done, usually it should say in the informed consent whether um, they'll the lab will hold on to your sample and rerun it. Depending on the consent that you sign, they will be able to rerun it without you having to assign another uh, informed consent. Sometimes you'll you'll need to sign another um, consent to say, oh, you've got new technology. Um, you can go ahead and run it through. Some laboratories may run your sample as is at, at the time and then discard of it. And so if um, advances are made and you'd want an update, in some cases you might have to submit a new sample. But for the most part, yeah, they're held on to. And so that as advances are made, um, you don't have to keep giving sample after sample to get the new information. And do you have to pay again to get the new information? Right. It, that is also laboratory um, dependent. For the most part at our institution, there's no additional additional charge Um but just as we learn more and get the new technology, we see it as an added benefit to our patients and to our providers to, again, have another tool in the toolkit. I think that's pretty neat is that you, you give your blood one time and then as, as new things, new technology, new genes are found, um, that, that'll keep being added to the information you got from that one particular blood draw. Yeah. And so at our institution, uh, we do blood draws. But you may also encounter um, different different sampling, such as um, spitting saliva into a tube or um, sort of scratching your cheek cells and submitting that. Uh, because of some of the the intricacies of of the the lab techniques. Um, we just find that using blood um, for the sake of, of results. Um, can provide us with more accurate information related to, you know, a gene or two. But there's certainly different um, collection methods. And so if you're, you know, really scared of a blood draw for whatever reason, but but you're curious, um, there may be, you know, other methodologies that you could check out. What about insurance companies paying for these kinds of testing? Great question. Very common question. Yes. Um, so... Just like a lot of things, insurances, you know, vary from policy to policy, company to company. And in my experience, the the preemptive testing, which is most often a panel, is not being covered um, by a majority of, of insurance companies. However, 
when we have talked about the reactive testing, so um, the clopidogrel, the the antidepressants, and with clopidogrel, that's just a, a single gene you're looking at. Antidepressants, you would look for a couple genes, but um, if there's strong evidence there, which there is for those, we're seeing more and more insurance companies choose to cover those. I think, and especially in the case of clopidogrel, um, there's there's a great uh, case to be made there, and so. Um, that's probably the most common one being covered as far as like if it's not covered and you you want to submit to your um, flex account or, or health um, savings account or something like that. Again, it's all just dependent on the different company, but uh, definitely a question uh, worth asking uh, to sort of see where your insurance company is at. Um, but still, even if it's not covered, again, in certain cases, it really may may be worth the, the cost, but something to check with individual insurance companies on that. But I, I suspect uh, as we see more data come out that we'll see more insurance companies jumping on board, at least with um, reactive testing for certain indications. Hopefully that's the case. Yeah. The other question I get a lot of is about life insurance. And this is less about pharmacogenomics and more about just genetic testing. And I know this isn't necessarily your realm, but um, do you yeah. do you answer a lot of questions about this? Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a great question. At our institution, uh, one of our platforms that we use has pharmacogenomics genetics plus um, you know some of that other genetic information like the BRCA genes that we were talking about and so there is coverage for more of that disease predisposition um, it's, it's called the GINA Act the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act I think it stands for and so that that's going to cover patients who you know um, maybe have a predisposition that's going to you know protect them from from uh, being fired, it's going to protect them. It can't be considered a, a predisposition. So there's a lot of protection um, for health insurance and employment that comes through the GINA Act. And of course, there's always exceptions for, um, you know, uh, companies that are like less than 15 people or something like that. And um, there's a few exceptions, but but in general, it provides good overarching um, support for that. Um but as far as life insurance, long-term care insurance, that's not covered under the GINA Act. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, patients considering, you know, beyond pharmacogenetic testing, um, some of this more disease predisposition testing, I recommend to make sure that um, they have the life insurance policy in place that, that they want um, before they get uh, the genetic testing done. I don't think it's necessarily commonplace yet that these life insurance companies are asking for or looking for um, the information, but because of you know the advances and because um, we're seeing genetic testing become more commonplace, uh, I foresee them more and more of them asking for that for that data sooner rather than later. bit about the commercially available genetic testing we touched on that just briefly yeah. but um, I think a lot of people you know have seen commercials or heard other people who've done it and can you talk about maybe what some of the differences are between that and having it done at a healthcare facility yeah that's a really really great question and I think um, an area that can can be um easily confused. And so we have direct to consumer tests um, versus laboratory derived tests. And 
you know, if you're having your, um, you know, testing done in a, in a health institution, most likely it's a, it's a laboratory derived test and, um, there's certifications that, that can make sure that the, the lab is at the highest standards, but direct to consumer testing is, you know, you can, uh, companies can advertise for it on TV, on the internet, uh, patients can just go and get the test without uh, any consent from their provider and the results um, get sent right back to the patient. And, you know, we've already, uh, you know, talked about how tests are not the same. And so um, from company to company, they're different. But with the with the direct to consumer tests, I think it's really important to note that um, if there is you know, a positive result that it's not necessarily confirmed. And so you would still need to go see your provider to have that confirmatory test for it because it is is just a screening test. And so I think that, um, you know, that's one area where, you know, fine, um, you've seen the positive test, but again, um, thinking psychologically too, you know, nothing to to really overwork yourself up until you go get that confirmatory test um, with with the proven technology. I think you know I don't I don't know you guys as providers can certainly speak to this, but I'll speak for myself as a pharmacist. Like this is a new emerging area. I don't feel like I graduated pharmacy school that long ago, but we didn't have a class in this, and now they do, and so you know, there's a lot of information to process to try and understand the the information that's reported out. And so um, when these results are reported directly to patients without any involvement from providers, I think that there's certainly a risk there um, for patients. And it's really important to understand to not you know, stop any medications based on the test results. A lot of test results will sort of use this um, stoplight approach. So green is is the medication is generally fine. Yellow, some standard precautions. And sometimes you'll see like um, a medication in red that says, you know, you know what red means like a stoplight. Right. And so if you consider a medication like warfarin, uh, there's there's a couple, oh, well, there's a handful of genes that go into warfarin metabolism. And anybody who's on warfarin knows that, you know, once you're on it, you get your INR test and you um, you guide your warfarin dose based on, on your INR results. Well, genetic testing for warfarin is really, really useful if you have a patient who's starting uh, warfarin, but once they're on it, you just adjust by INR. So you might get a, a test result back, see warfarin in red and think that you have to stop it right away. And so I think, you know, having that added expertise um, of a provider to to look at that report with you, uh, you know, to make sure that that you're interpreting it the right way and not making um, any decisions. I think that's really important. I think we are so fortunate, like you said, to have our genetic pharmacists. We have our genetic counselors available. So there's a lot of things that we can do in follow-up when people do genetic testing at our facility, which is very different than if you go to one of the um, direct-to-consumer tests. And, you know, the direct-to-consumer tests, um, they can provide some fun information. There's some ancestry information and are you more likely to respond to caffeine or not? And so, you know, a lot of people um, think that they make a, a fun gift. Um, and certainly they do. Uh, 
again, if insurance and cost is a, a consideration, you know, generally the direct to consumer tests are not being covered by insurance, really only the, the direct, uh, clinical tests from from the lab and so that's something to um, consider as well also you know you you can look at what a company is offering as far as genes tested and so they might say that they test a bunch of genes but they might only look in one or two areas for that broken gene um, whereas Another company or a health system, um, you know, would look for a lot more places where that gene could be broken. And so I think that that, you know, um, is important to consider. Additionally, I think it's a, a good point to bring up that more is not always better. And so you'll see a lot of um, uh, companies say, well, we test for all of this. And we've already, you know, sort of talked about that there's limited utility. And so you could have all of this result, but there's no strong evidence for it. And so, you know, great, but but what do you do with it? And so those are all important things to consider, I think. And I, I echo that uh, I am several years out from training. And you know, I if somebody just brought me one of these from from an outside source, I don't know that I would know a hundred percent. You know how to guide them in the results, um, because I rely on our our pharmacists and geneticists here to to help provide me that information. So I yeah, I don't even think I feel comfortable with some of those results from outside sources. Yeah, certainly we would want our patients to bring them in if they had questions and we could direct them to the right person. But um, in terms of my own expertise, I think we're fortunate to have gotten some training um, within our within our system. But we uh, there's a lot to it. And it's it's a changing field on a regular basis. So Definitely. As we mentioned, we're pretty fortunate to have a very robust genetic program and pharmacogenomic program at Sanford. If if our listeners are not local or they have um, other interest in getting more genetic information, what other places are doing a lot with genetics and kind of doing the research like Sanford is doing? Yeah, so... You know, Sanford um, is, is pretty unique within our large, you know, rural footprint to be able to offer this to our patients um, in the Midwest. Certainly, you know, Mayo Clinic is is a leader in this field um, as well. But uh, when I talked about the Ignite network of working together to um, get more data so that we can help move this forward, and we think of places like Sanford Health is involved in that, um, Vanderbilt, University of Florida, some of those major academic um, medical centers. But I think that uh, wherever you are, if it's something you're interested in, you know, definitely um, bring up to to your provider. Not all institutions are going to have a, a lab with their own health system, but a lot of institutions actually choose outside um, verified companies to work with to, to send results to. And uh, again, we've talked about it's, it's worth a discussion whether it's, it's you know, warranted to have the test, uh, depending on how much money it will cost and all of that. But certainly if it's something that you're interested in, um, you know, there should be an outlet close to you wherever you are to be able to have it done. But um, certainly uh, some of the some of the leaders in the field are a lot of the research institutions, major academic medical centers. Um, but again, Sanford Health is is quite unique here um, 
in, in the Midwest, in the rural region, not only to doing the pharmacogenetic testing, but some of that disease predisposition testing as well. And, um, and how it's incorporated into the medical record, I think, is just uh, another important um, point. You know, at our institution, we have alerts that fire. The um, results are with any other lab result, like your lipid panel for cholesterol. And so it's easily accessible. Um, some institutions just don't have that capability. So you might get a result and and it'll still be in your chart, but maybe just, you know, scanned in a separate tab. And so it doesn't have the functionality to alert providers. And we've talked about, you know, um, not everyone has had robust training. And so a lot of these alerts are very helpful um, for guiding um, providers on, on how to respond to this genetic data. So, um, you know, I think the opportunity is out there. It's very costly to implement a genetic program. So, you know, a lot of places still aren't um, going forward with robust programs, but there there should be an opportunity, if not at your own um, institution, some someplace nearby to be able to get this accomplished if you're interested in it. Well, if you're listening and you have additional questions, you can always send us a message. We're at mail at everythingdoc.com. And if it's a question that Lindsay and I don't know the answer to, we will get in touch with Natasha and get back to you. We'll list some additional resources on our show notes. So if you want to check that out or look up some more information, that's at our website, www.everythingdoc.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Natasha, thanks so much for joining us today. This, I think, is invaluable information for our listeners, and we really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Lindsay, do we have a health pearl this week? I was thinking about how I use one of these mail order companies that sends me recipes and the food to make those recipes several nights a week and how I think that contributes to my family's health. Um, and so why I think that's a good idea is certainly those times when I haven't had time to go to the grocery store and plan out meals for the week or if I am running late getting home from work. I don't have to think about what I'm going to make and so it doesn't make me you know, run by the fast food joint. I actually get home and, and most of the meals take 30 minutes to make and you can pick quite healthy ones. Um, Generally, what, what we pick um, are the vegetarian meals so that that's how we get our, our plant-based protein meals. Uh, and then when we cook our favorite recipes, we're still doing the ones that, that involve meat. So I, I was just thinking about how that makes us healthier as a family. Yeah, so we're talking about things like, there, there are many out there, but HelloFresh, I think, is the one you right. use, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's Purple Carrot, there's Plated. Blue and Blue Apron. Yeah, many other great um, options. And I think, yeah, if you're a busy family and you do tend to find yourself running and grabbing fast food just because of the time it takes to either plan and prepare or you just are busy with activities, then these are a really great option. Yeah. If you're enjoying listening to our show, we would love for you to write a review for us. You can go to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a hopefully a high rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us, and we appreciate that. If you also have suggestions or ways to make our show better or more helpful to you, please email us. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.